1: no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details
2: the dugout premier league preview football social daily
0: Just two weeks to go until the World Cup kicks off in Qatar, which means just two weeks of Premier League action left before Christmas. Thankfully, though, there are some really good games in prospect this weekend, with Chelsea hoping to derail Arsenal at the bridge, Tottenham will attempt to turn over Liverpool, Unai Emery has his first Aston Villa game at the helm against Manchester United, and will Jesse Marsh still be the man for Leeds if they can't see off AFC Bournemouth? We'll pick the bones out of those games and we'll also ask what really happens on a Manager's first day at the office when he rocks up at the training ground. Helping me to deal with all of that are two former Premier League players, as we've always got here on the dugout. A warm welcome back to the show for ex Leicester and Brighton man Dean Hammond and former title winner with Everton Trevor Stephen. How are you doing, gents?
3: I'm good, thanks. Thanks, Niall. Good to see you, Dean
4: very well now very well i'm good to see you trevor looking very smart mate looking very smart thanks very much mate yeah Trevor,
0: yeah. you've got the old do you got the old suited and suited and turtleneck i was uh, gonna say suited yeah. and booted but uh, you're pretty I close know,
3: it's not not like me because i normally i've got the raggy t-shirt on and a bit of a, a beard <laughs> that's gone all over the place but uh, today i thought i'd uh up the ante somewhat
0: yeah looking good mate looking very sharp indeed and we're gonna kick off this week's episode of the dugout by talking about probably the biggest game of the weekend for me it's Chelsea against Arsenal it's the Sunday midday kickoff at Stamford Bridge and Arsenal of course are looking to keep pace at the top of the Premier League and Chelsea are looking to keep up their push for the top four I'd argue Dean for the last 10 years or maybe more we've looked at these games through the perspective of Chelsea being the better team and the favourites going into these sorts of matches particularly with this one being at Stamford Bridge as well but do you think for the first time in a a long time. The Gunners are the fancy team in this one this time.
4: Well, I'd agree with you in terms of past history over the last 10 years with Chelsea being favourites, you know, been European champions, uh, winning titles, um, and, and Arsenal have been playing catch-up. But if you take it on form and you take it on this season and, and the present, Arsenal look superb. They've had a great start to the season. Um, they've lost one game, which is against United away, which arguably they, they didn't deserve to lose. Um, they've got a team that are playing fantastic football. They've got players that it seems as though they trust in the manager and they look confident and they look happy and they're an exciting team to watch. And, you know, they're picking up some really, really good results. They've beaten some some so-called bigger teams this season, which they haven't previously done. And they're also picking up points and, and victories against teams where maybe they also struggled last year. You know, you think about Leeds away, um, Crystal Palace first game of the season. There used to be challenges and a bit of hiccups for for Arsenal. Um, and Chelsea are in a bit of a transition. New manager, um, players, they've got some injuries there. Uh, Their form has been up and down. They've also got the challenge of uh, the Champions League, which they're performing very well in under Graham Potter. Um, And, you know, I've had the privilege of seeing Arsenal a couple of times live this season, and and they're really good. Really good, really good in possession. It looks like there's a togetherness in in them. Um, There's a bit more grit and determination uh, about them. Um, and I know this one's at Stamford Bridge, but the atmosphere at the Emirates this season has been exceptional. It's been fantastic. Back to the to the glory days of Arsenal, when I think that just shows the fans are excited about what's happening in Arsenal. So I would say they're favourites, but it's still an even game. Still an even game because they're both very good teams.
0: I think you're right as well. All of the attributes you say about Arsenal, but also a hunger. And I think that Arteta's put that into his players. A lot of them are young and almost have things to prove still. You know, like Martinelli, we know he's been a good player for a couple of years, but now he's really starting to come into it. Erdegaard, Saka, all of these players are young and even Gabriel Jesus, who some might argue never really hit the heights he should have done underneath Aguero at Manchester City. Now he's the main man in the spotlight at Arsenal. So I think that there's definitely an element um, to that, and also the atmosphere as well. Arsenal have changed a little, um, a little bit of the where the home singing section is at the Emirates, and I think that's made a real big difference as well. So only only small tinkering changes, but maybe making a big difference. And just building on the Gunners, Trevor, as Dean rightly says, they weren't really effective enough in the big games against top six sides last season. They haven't played Man City yet, but they beat Liverpool. They beat their rivals, Spurs. They lost to Manchester United though. Have they faced enough top six opponents yet this season to convince everyone that they're there to stay in the top two?
3: It is of course uh, so important that Arsenal get points against the teams that they're going to be challenging against at the top end of the table. Um, th- is, it, is it enough already? Listen, It's early days in the season uh, but what I've seen and what I saw last year, um, and I've mentioned this to you before now, that, you know, that all or nothing programme, the documentary, uh, really opened my eyes to the workings that is, that is becoming the new Arsenal under Arteta. Uh, and, the, you know, we always talk about do managers get enough time? Uh, and Arteta uh, has been, giving, been given a bit of time a little bit of time, but he has gone probably quicker than Arsenal would have imagined with converting this talented squad into a winning squad. And I think what we're seeing is um, the lessons learned by Arteta being um, absorbed by the, uh, the Arsenal players. And they've got a lovely mix as well, haven't they? They're still a, predominantly a young outfit, uh, but they've got a sprinkling of maturity as well about them and they look like they they've got each other's backs and you can never really say that about an arsenal team over the last few years that they would go to war for each other and uh, this group seems like they can um and and jacques would be one that i would say has been a key element to that he has he's a sort of mature one uh, you know going forward uh from that midfield area and He's, but he just comes across as just one of the one of the lads, you know, as one of the boys, but he has got a lot to offer both inside the dressing room and on the pitch, and it's been great. I love, I love to see it, someone who was written off by the fans and absolutely written off by them. And his, his bridges were burnt entirely on that night with Arsenal, you would have thought. But, you know, credit to him and credit to Arteta for seeing probably more than we saw in, in Xhaka. Um I think they have the belief and I think they're certainly going into every match aiming to win it and believing they can win it and that will give them a chance against anyone. Uh, So I've been hugely impressed. Uh, The squad is balanced. The squad is uh, a team and the only question mark is if they get one or two injuries, will that really, really affect them? But so far, so far, so good from an Arsenal point of view.
0: What about Chelsea then? Let's move on to them now because they've played some really good football under Graham Potter at times, Dean, but... At other times, they've also been pretty poor. You think about last weekend against Brighton where they got absolutely hammered. They weren't particularly great against Manchester United recently, although they got a 1-1 draw out of the match. Is it hard to know what sort of Chelsea we're going to see here? Because I'm thinking about this match trying to come at it from a more neutral perspective and I can't tell you what sort of match we're going to see from a from a Chelsea point of view. We know what Arsenal are about. They've set their stall out this season. But obviously, Chelsea, they've had two managers, Tuchel and now Potter. Some performances under Potter have been good, some not so good. So I feel like it's quite hard to, to pinpoint what sort of Chelsea we might see this weekend.
4: Yes, and I think you can probably expect that inconsistency in terms of with Graham Potter being a new manager and, and knowing the type of manager he is. He was given a lot of time at Brighton um, and he was allowed to go with the ups and downs to, to produce the team that, that he wanted. And ultimately, he produced a very good team that were challenging. I mean, he left Brighton in fourth in, in the Premier League. So he was very successful there. And he wanted to do a similar thing at Chelsea. But if you look at the, the team selection, he seems to be giving a lot of the squad opportunities um, in terms of playing time. He wants to have a look at the squad. So that says to me that he may get that time at Chelsea. Um, his formations has changed a few times, so I think that is a little bit inconsistent as well. Um, they've had injuries as well. And also, he's got the challenge of... He's probably got to prove himself to the players, where it's a little bit different sometimes with a new manager coming in. Players seem to want to have to prove themselves to the manager. But Graham Potter is probably not quite as high-profile as previous managers at Chelsea, even though he's done a very, very good job. And there's very high-profile players there So he's probably having to convince the players all the time. Now, you get that with results. If you're winning games, you convince players, ultimately. So I think they're improving. I think they're doing very well in the Champions League. They're picking up results. And I think they could be competitive there. How they're doing in the Premier League, I'm unsure. But if you look at the result last week against um, Brighton, I think that just shows where they are at the moment. They're a little bit inconsistent because he's trying to find his best team he's trying to implement what he wants he want he'll want Chelsea to press he want them to play with high energy he want them to have possession of the ball all the time keep possession and create opportunities and they're doing that in moments now but they're not doing it for a, a full game so I think that's why the results have been up and down but I think given time and the opportunity he will be a very good manager at Chelsea but this is a tough test against Arsenal because Arteta has had that time and he's, they've got that um fluent play. They've got that understanding. They've got the relationships in the team. They've got that consistency in selection and they're getting that the result. So this is going to be a tough test for Chelsea.
0: And some would argue the toughest yet since Potter took the reins. Sunday's looking really good, isn't it? If the 12 pm kickoff is Chelsea against Arsenal, the 430pm kickoff is Tottenham against Liverpool. And it was a late winner for Spurs in Europe midweek, Trevor, it secures passage through to the knockout stages of the Champions League, but they can't keep allowing teams to take the lead and then come from behind to win. It's obviously a great feeling when you do do that as a side, but it's not a strategy that's going to win you matches consistently. Eventually, you're going to be found out. So that's something that, although it's benefited Tottenham recently, it's a guess a, a, a factor that they're going to have to stamp out pretty quickly.
3: Yeah, I watched, I've, I've seen a bit of Tottenham actually uh, in recent weeks. I was at the Everton game at uh, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium uh, and they come away with the result um, and on paper it looks pretty convincing but it, it wasn't a convincing performance uh, Everton were very defensive but um, Tottenham do struggle against that they haven't really got the creativity in, the, in their group to to unlock defences but non-con- non-convincing and when I watched the, the game against Marseille during the week I was kidding if I was a Tottenham fan and looking at the first 45 minutes you, you, you would have to say that that is as unambitious performance as you could imagine. Um, when Harry Kane is literally defending his own area for the first 45 minutes uh, and, and they go behind just before the break. Uh, deservedly so. It was a lack of um, uh, I don't know, aggression in their play and, and going to show what they can do on the ball. Uh, it, was, it was incredibly negative. Second half, when they had to open up, they did. Um, and, and sort of showed Marseille for what they are, We are, are a fragile, decent team in um, in French football. Uh, and maybe the the atmosphere in the stadium kind of sort of brushes all over the cracks of what the team is actually like at Marseille. You know, they're, they're an inconsistent side. But Tottenham only in that second half looked like the kind of team that I think Conte wants them to be. I mean, surely he doesn't want them to be like what they were in the first half. Don't know what the message is coming out of that dressing room but but they start games very very poorly uh and almost give too much respect to the opposition um the, but the, the the conundrum is in my head that they're still getting results are still sitting in the top four and and into the last 16 of the champions league and we Tottenham them to have that you know 12 months ago um it, it's a major step forward but i don't see that the this level of performance can can last and be sustained. Maybe they need that uh, Kulosevsky back, that balance that they did have when they were showing a bit better football. Um, but that, if they're depending on one player to create the balance, then I think that's you know that that's a shortage. And Conte keeps saying it, doesn't he? He needs another transfer. When they needs another, maybe two transfer windows. But how long does that go with um, you know with the board and um, you know with the the backing of the fans? Um, I, I think it's too. It's far too early to, for a Tottenham fans to say, well, we need to move on. I think that Conte proven to be a winner, but uh, you've got to give them time to like, turn those performances about. But I don't think that even the Tottenham, die-hard Tottenham fans will put up with it too much longer. So I think they'll be expecting a new Tottenham come uh, the new year after the World Cup and, and uh, you got a real push towards consistency. Uh, and and moving further forward in the Champions League and maintaining that top four position in the Premier League.
0: Yeah, I spoke to a Tottenham fan, Johnny, who's the statistician for the Premier League, earlier this week on the podcast and he said that Spurs are really missing Kulisevski. It looks like he's kind of a a real missing factor for them but in terms of the way they're winning games at the moment despite the fact they're not playing well does go a long way to stamping out that Spursy tag that they often get labelled with that they've got this soft underbelly and I suppose that will only do them some favours but talking of having a soft underbelly Dean it's not something we usually say about Liverpool who also won in Europe this week but in terms of their Premier League results they just can't find any rhythm whatsoever they lost 2-1 against Manchester United and then they beat Bournemouth 9-0 in the next match Then they beat Manchester City 1-0 a couple of weeks later, but then lost to Forest the following weekend. Then they beat Ajax midweek comfortably and then lost to Leeds. So this weekend against Tottenham, is this another case of the Reds being more than capable of winning this game and looking good in doing so, only to then go and slip up somewhere else? 100%.
4: Hundred percent. I mean, no, they're, they're more than capable. Obviously, beating anyone, and they've shown that with the result against Man City and the results they've had in Europe. You know, they've been a really good Napoli team um, during the week, who have been fantastic this year. Probably one of the best teams in Europe. Um, but then they've lost games where you wouldn't expect them to lose games, and it's it's an interesting one with Liverpool. I think this year they're more they're feeling a little bit more pressure from the teams. There's better teams below them. It's not just them and Man City. Um, They've had their injuries, um, obviously, new players coming in. Um, But they've just conceded more goals than you would expect um, and soft goals as well. I wouldn't say they're getting bullied, but they're losing those one on one duels, them them basics in football, which are so important. Um, And they're probably feeling a little bit of pressure because they're being questioned for the first time. Individually, players are getting questioned are they good enough anymore? Are they playing at the the level they should be? Klopp's being questioned for the for the first time after everything's just been roses in terms of what a manager what he's achieved at Liverpool, and that can affect you. It can affect your decision making as an individual player on the pitch, and could de- affect your decision making as, as a manager as well. So it's been tough for him, and I think that's what the inconsistency's been. But I still think that they're, they're they're missing that midfield player. You know, Trevor you I, I played midfield as well. It's such an important position, to have someone in there who's who's dynamic, who can get on the ball, who can run games, who can make things happen. Now, they've got players that are technically brilliant in that area of the pitch, but no one that can really maybe break up play. Uh, No one can break from midfield, which has got real pace and, like I say, it's dynamic, which the bigger the other teams have. And I think that they're missing that, really. And they seem... You probably never sat at Liverpool, but at times I watched the Forest game. They just one-paced and a little bit predictable, to be honest. Didn't really look like they're ever going to break Forest down. So that's the difference. And I they miss Mane. They miss Mane. They really do. And just they,
0: just on the midfield thing, Dean. Whilst you were talking about it there, I mean, we've spoken about things like um, Fabinho not quite being up to the level at the moment. Things like um jordan henderson getting a little older and and maybe his legs starting to go you've played that position how fast is the drop off from being in and amongst it and being able to dictate the tempo of a game to then all of a sudden i'm losing control here i'm losing it and it's such a f- unforgiving position to play on the pitch that you get found out pretty quickly if your levels dip so how how easy is it is that to slip away from you i suppose
4: well, I can only speak personally. It seemed to happen really quickly um, for, for me. Probably when I got over the age of thirty, really, you, you, the decline was was pretty quick in terms of being able to get around the pitch as, as quickly as I wanted to, uh, being aware of things as quickly as I was, and instinctive as well, kind of sniffing things out for, in, in that position of of winning the ball back, anticipating um, play and again, goes back to your decision-making because when you're not playing it best, your confidence drops a bit. So you're not quite, you don't quite trust yourself. Um, and that's probably happening with, with, the, with the older players potentially. Uh, but the game's so quick now, so quick that you need those type of players in, in midfield that can can win the ball back and press, especially the way Liverpool play. You know, at times when they've got the ball, they're so spread out that when they do lose possession, you've got to have someone that can, can react and win the ball back. And they just don't have that at the moment. I think... That's why they're getting exposed defensively. You look at um, Trent Arnold, Alexander-Arnold. When he's out of position, if you've got a midfield player that can get across and cover that, it kind of gets mopped up. Now, they don't have that. So he gets left one-on-one in situations or he can't recover himself. Um, and Liverpool's just probably been exposed a bit too much. And I think that's why they've lost games you wouldn't expect and their form's been a little bit inconsistent.
0: Okay, well Liverpool against Spurs this weekend is another exciting game. That one's 4.30 on Sunday. We're going to skip over Aston Villa against Manchester United because we're actually going to talk about Unai Emery in a little bit more detail next. But let's move on to Leeds against Bournemouth. And Dean says the words decision-making. And we said last week on the show that Leeds might have a decision to make Trevor over the future of Jesse Marsh. We predicted he was clinging on and then he pulled a result out of the bag against Liverpool. Nobody was really expecting them to beat Liverpool, let's be honest. Despite the fact Liverpool have struggled struggled at times this term so in a way does this Bournemouth game this weekend become bigger than the Liverpool match if the Liverpool match was a free hit this one certainly isn't as far as the Leeds fans are concerned
3: well I think uh, you know Leeds going to to Anfield and getting a result will have done them a power of good because now they can believe they can do anything you know given a given a really good performance and maybe opposition just off um, uh, tilt it a little bit but Jesse Marsh for me, his job was riding on that result, and it worked out to be um, a terrific Leeds performance, high intensity performance. What Dean was talking about um, with the Liverpool side, their intensity has dropped this season, and um, they can't just rely on their reputations. Uh, they've never relied on that reputation, but maybe they've been doing so this, this season. And a little bit of self doubt has crept into them. I don't know what to say about Jesse Marsh and and, um, and, and Leeds because at, for the majority of the season, they have been um, difficult to put into words how how I would describe a Leeds performance. They, they've been active. They've been um, all over the place as far as tactics and formation seems to, seems to have been. They have been in games and lost games as well. Uh, so it's been a bit of a mess, to be quite honest with you. Uh, and I thought he was on a real shaky peg with his um, with his future. But he's certainly bought himself some time. Now I think they will have the momentum, and I think they will they will blow away Bournemouth at the weekend. I think mean, it's uh, when the Leeds crowd are up, they are they are something else. And I think they will uh, they will get the get the victory on the back of the momentum that they've gained this week. Um, and, and they do start, need to start scoring more goals, of course, Leeds United. Uh, and and that will be the you know, their saviour at the end of the day, whether they're able to do it or not, I'm not sure as yet. Um uh, but as I said Jesse Marsh has, with that one result, given himself I think through so the the transfer window that comes up in January.
0: Yeah, we'll wait and see what happens in the near future for Leeds United. Will Jesse Marsh still be in the job come the break for the World Cup? Just two weeks left to Premier League action. Leeds against Bournemouth is Saturday, 3 o'clock. And this weekend, Unai Emery takes charge of Aston Villa for the first time, officially as manager, as they welcome Manchester United to Villa Park. That's Sunday, 2 o'clock kick-off. And we're going to talk about new managers next on the podcast. We'll do it
2: after this. The Dugout. Premier League Preview. Football Social Daily. The Dugout, Premier League Preview, Football Social Daily.
0: Welcome back. Now Unai Emery's first game in charge this weekend is against Manchester United Sunday at two o'clock and his first proper day on the training ground was this Tuesday and joining me on the dugout today two former Premier League players Dean Hammond and Trevor Stephen and I wanted to ask you guys what actually happens on that first day as a player when a new manager rocks up. I'll I'll come to you first Dean. How is that as a player, as an experience when a new manager is arriving and his first day on the training ground? I saw the video that Aston Villa put out of Unai Emery getting out of the taxi. He walks in in his suit. He comes out of the room in his uh, Aston Villa tracksuit with his whistle and his clipboard for the very first time. And he strides onto the training ground with a real confidence, I must say. But I think you need to have that when you're a manager sometimes, particularly when you're coming into a new job. So what was that experience like for you as a player when you knew that there was a new gaffer rocking up and maybe you'd never met him before?
4: Well, it all depends now whether you've worked under them before, where you've had a good experience with them or a bad experience with them before. So that that can <laughs> that can uh, play a major role in that. Um, but as a player, there's there's excitement, obviously, um, but you're anxious as well because obviously you want to make a good first impression. Um, you're probably worried about the future, your personal future at the club. Will the manager fancy me? Will he want to play? Uh, Would he want to play me? Am I going to be part of it, his plans? But generally, it starts with the manager kind of introducing himself. It would all, from my experience, it would always start with a, a team meeting um, and they're very different. I've had managers come in that will kind of map out a plan of what he expects, um, maybe even map out some rules, what he expects from, from the squad um, and what his expectations are of the season uh, and players individually. Um, and then I've had ma- managers come in um, and if you're struggling, where I've been at clubs where new managers come in, then they come in and they give you a really strong opinion of what they think. And, and that's happened in front of the group, not individually, um, to kind of just maybe stamp his authority straight away. Um, and managers like to do that sometimes to feel as, uh, to make you feel as though I'm in charge here and I'm going to make an impression and things are going to change. So it's very different and, and very individual for, for each manager. But generally it starts with... Um, that team meeting and there's there's there is some anxiety as a player, um because you really don't know what to expect. You could have seen a manager on TV, seen him work, spoke to other players that have worked with him, but until you're up front, until you're face to face with someone, you, you really really don't know. And then it's on the training ground. And first few days, first week, training goes up by twenty percent. You know, players are are trying to impress, um, they're trying to get to uh, play their best and trying to get into the manager's fault. So. It's not. I'm not going to lie, it's not the most enjoyable day when a new manager comes in, I must
0: admit. I mean, what are first impressions counted for, Trevor? We always say in life, in general, first impressions are quite important. But is that extra so for a, a group of lads who are maybe struggling? Because as the old saying goes, no manager ever comes into a club that's successful. Very rarely is that the case. It's normally a manager comes in because a, a previous incumbent has been sacked. So how important are first impressions to a playing group, in your opinion?
3: My experience uh, is different to Dean's because every time a manager changed at the football clubs I was at, which was Burnley, Everton, Rangers, uh, and Marseille, the replacement came from within the football club, so you already knew them. And, uh, a bit bizarre, but all all the way through it was um, second in command would take over, and that was that. S left Rangers, and Walter Smith came in, but I knew them knew him anyway. And um, at Everton, Howard Kendall left, Colin Harvey took over the reins. And the same with Burnley, the same with Marseille. Uh, so slightly different. So I didn't really have that um, impact that a new manager can, can make in, in, um, into a group of players. But without, without a doubt, it gets players on their toes and it, it refocuses them. Uh, and everyone believes they've got a chance. And it's like you know, Graham Potter at Chelsea has gone in and really opened the door to everybody there's, there's no favoritism there's no reputation there's no um, guaranteed of starts uh, everybody's up for the cup if you want and which is which is great players will react to that but it's how long you sustain it for uh, is the secret I just think Unai Emery at, at Aston Villa has a has a great opportunity of doing really well i think because he's dipped his toe in the in the Premier League before um uh, that will count for a lot. And he didn't do so badly at Arsenal um, You know, when, when you compare what other managers get uh, allowed to keep their jobs for currently. Um, and the fact as well that he's been learning English during the period that he's been out of the English game as well. I think his communication skills are going to be absolutely vital. And that's not only externally, but certainly internally and getting messaging over to the players. Uh, and of course, his track record is there for everyone to see. The guy's a winner and uh, he gets good performances out of, out of players and not necessarily top-rung uh, players, right? not the absolute elite. Uh, so I look forward to seeing what he can actually do and what kind of different uh, tactics he will bring into that squad and what he will actually see as his starting eleven. Uh, you know when he picks his side for this weekend.
0: Talking of getting messages over to the players, Dean, how long does that take? Because he's only been on the training ground since Tuesday, Unai Emery. That was his first day. And as you mentioned, most of the first day is just getting to know the lads and maybe you'll do a light session or whatever. But how long does it take before a manager's ideas start getting put into place? Because I can't imagine, unless he's you know the best man manager in any walk of life, that what he said on a Tuesday, Wednesday and a Thursday is going to come across on a on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon at the weekend. like it, Surely it's too soon. So how long does that start to, to take effect?
4: I think it's definitely too soon to see exactly how we want to play and exactly his philosophy for, for Aston Villa. And he'll want to, I'm sure he's done a lot of homework um, like Trevor said, they would have done a lot of research on, on Aston Villa, um, the history of the club, the, the squad that's there. You would have watched all the games, I'm sure, which, which managed to do now. They have the opportunity to do that. So it'd be fully aware of their form and their performances and how they've been playing. And I'm sure with most managers, like I've experienced, when managers come in, they try to change things quite subtly and quite slowly to get to where they want to get to. I think if you come in and make household changes, it can disrupt things uh, and maybe won't quite work Um, but I'm sure that he'll try and get his messages across as quickly as he can and we've been able to speak better English now that's important Um, but it may just be little things and probably that would be personnel changes Uh, maybe shape the change of shape um, whether they'll they'll try and press now or whether they'll try and hold a shape and play on the counter-attack it'd be those kind of basis and then you'll build from that. I think, and that that, that that does take time. It does take time. You can do as much as you want in the training ground, but you can't replicate it in games. You know, he's really going to see the true colours of players in games, in performances, when the pressure's on. So it's going to take time, but I agree with Trevor. It's a really good appointment. He's got amazing experience. He's done so well in Europe, and probably what Aston Villa are trying to do. They're probably trying to get into Europe, and then can they be a force in Europe, which he's had such success at. So, I think it's a brilliant appointment. I feel sorry for for Steven Gerrard because I wanted him personally to do well because I loved him as a player, but it wasn't quite working out. And things you hear about the club, the players didn't quite take to him, unfortunately. Um, So I think it's a good appointment for Aston Villa, but it will take time. And I think because of his reputation, he'll get that time.
0: It got me thinking, Trevor, that Unai Emery is a certain uh, breed of manager, which we see a lot more of these days. You know Pep Guardiola the same, Klopp the same, there's so much more for managers to think about now. And it got me thinking that there aren't too many Neil Warnock type characters in the game anymore. And actually, somewhat unfairly, those types of managers are kind of um, levelled at, at your generation of players as well. And almost everyone thinks that all managers in the, the 80s and early 90s were kind of tub thumpers that would shout and scream in the dressing room, which is just obviously not the case. But do you think that that sort of manager has kind of died out in the modern game? Do you think there's a place for it?
3: Uh, If you look at the the successful teams now, you know, they're very technical uh, in their approach, Um, the details that they go into in preparation for matches uh, is going to several other levels from what you kind of regard the Neil Warnock style as being, which is more about man management um, and primarily about man management on the basis of the structure of your team. You've got someone like Sean Dyche at the moment, which I think would probably be the nearest uh, kind of style of manager to the new Warnock days in, in the top level. But even he's struggling to get back into a Premier League team. There's a few jobs come up already and he's kind of in the mix but not quite in the mix because it's seen as someone who operates basically on a simple structure and that's really what what the, the team and, and club are gonna be based on. And and then you, you look at what the wants and wills of the board of directors are and they tend to be a bunch of ambitious people who sometimes got um ambitions beyond their uh potential and and that can cause a problem as well. So I think it's more difficult than it than than ever before. Um Management has become a job that you study for, uh, rather than sort of learn with experience and and learn um, in the old-fashioned way. You take some jobs in the lower leagues and then you work your way up. Um, that I think is coming, you know, to a, a an end as far as I see. You know, if you look at Graham, Graham Potter and the way that he's done it, I can see that that's a way of of, of going away, learning your trade, and then coming back but being very technical minded. I just think that, as you said, the drum beating days um, are, are in the bin, really. In in, in most senses, otherwise there is going to be a, a you are creating a massive void in your own football club uh, if you are ignoring the ways of today, which is about knowing medically how the players are, and sometimes picking on the basics or the basis of um, their levels that are measured by the medical teams within football clubs. I mean that was never. Uh, uh, part and parcel of how you selected the team back in the day. It was just, can you walk, can you strap, can we strap it up and can you just go on and play again? Those seem to be the rules of selection back in the day, but not anymore. It's far more scientific. And and, and that goes to the styles of football now and the way that the the game's played. And it sort of goes back to the the Juan Cruyff Guardiola uh, Ticky tacky kind of ways of of playing football, which is, um, which has enveloped the Premier League. Everyone plays out from the back now. Of literally, most clubs play out from the back. Even even the lesser teams try to play out uh, from the back. So, the game has changed, I think the days have, have gone of of, of Neil Warnock and the likes
2: Football's social daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Ball's social daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.
0: Someone who's been brilliant recently is Miguel Almirón, winning Newcastle United's Player of the Month award for October. Uh, and some people have jokingly said that his form has coincided with Jack Grealish's cheeky comments. At Manchester City's title-winning parade last season after he jibed that Riyad Mahrez deserved to be subbed because he was playing like, quote, Miguel Almiron. Um, it led me to think what your experiences might have been when you were a player... Dean and Trevor as well Uh, we'll start with you Dean has anyone whether that be a manager, a coach, a teammate maybe even an opponent or a family member or a friend said anything to you which has made you want to go out there and play out of your skin because it seems like ever since Jack Grealish has made that a slightly tipsy joke about Miguel Almirón. the lad's been on fire. So is there any anything you can relate to with that? <laughs>
4: How long you got now? <laughs> <laughs> as long as you need that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we all get it with with um, people having opinions on you, whether it's whether it's fans, whether it's um, coaches, whether it's fellow players, whether it's opposition. Um, and there's been, there's been times with managers um, where you've been called out, um, whether that's to motivate you or whether that's actually the truth and they don't rate you as a player. Uh, but one occasion I remember when I was early on with, with Southampton, actually, um, we played a game um, and the opposition, like they all do, do their scouting reports, do their match reports, and they actually left it in the um, the dressing room um, after the game. And it had the reports on all of us as players individually so the manager and everything, they, they could prepare for the game. Uh, and mine wasn't too, too nice, if I'm honest, and it wasn't um, too positive. Which was which was interesting. (laughs) Go on, on, what did it say? Um, I think it was like something like lacked a little bit of quality. um, Gives gives a ball away um, too often. um, Won't get a goal, not a goal threat. So it wasn't anything great. I must admit, smells terrible. Something like that. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Yeah, (laughs) Um, obviously, I've got a bit of stick from the lads um, and. (laughs) Yeah, if I'm honest, it is a little bit embarrassing and um, hurt a little bit because I didn't feel as though that as, a, as a player. But it did inspire me because, you know, it gave me a bit of a open my eyes to the fact of how other clubs maybe saw me or other um, players saw me. Um, but that was early on in my Southampton career. And, um, you know, all it did was inspire me to work harder to become better as a player um, yeah. and open to eyes to potentially my weaknesses. So, yeah, that, that was that was interesting, but look, I ended up going on to get back-to-back promotions from League One to the Premier League with Southampton, so it didn't end too well, too badly, mate, I must admit, but at the time, it was difficult to take, but it did give me a rocket up my arse, let's put it that way.
0: What was the club that you were playing against, can you reveal?
4: I think it was Oldham, I think it was, oh, when I was right. we were playing, so it was in League One when I was at Southampton, I'd first joined, and it was... Um, yeah, I think it was Oldham and it was because usually when it, teams, when they're clearing the dressing rooms, they're, they're clear everything because they don't want to give any other opposition any information they've got or anything. It's really well, it's left clean, everything's taken, the kit man will double check to double check so nothing's left and, you know, it was probably one of the only times it happened but the match report or scout report was left. They probably did it on purpose but… Um, yeah it was left there for us to see
0: yeah jokes on Oldham though because they're in the non-league now aren't they (laughs) although I kind of uh, I kind of have a bit of um, disdain for Oldham for doing that because if it got Saints back-to-back promotions that's no good for me (laughs) as a Pompey fan so I kind of blame Oldham for that Um, what about anything from sort of family members or, or teammates, is there any ever any of that? You know, I mean, you often hear people who say that their dad or their parent or their uncle is their biggest inspiration, but often they're harshest critics. So is there ever anything that anyone said to you from maybe your closest circles that's really given you a bit of a, a boost, maybe in terms of just motivation, if anything else?
4: If I'm honest, no, not really. Um, I think in terms of family, very supportive are always there for me um and appreciate friends very similar um probably had a lot of doubters if i'm honest from you know i'm from a small town in hastings you know i always dreamed of being a uh, professional footballer and getting to the premier league and it didn't really happen too much from 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 the area so there was always doubt you know if you bumped into old friends or people on a night out potentially would would um probably call you a bit of a dreamer um but nothing in terms of anything like that where I was really doubted to anyone close to me. It all came from, you know, supporters potentially um, or coaches. Or um, I remember one time where we was playing a preseason season friendly. Um, I think we were playing Sutton when I was at Southampton again and Alan Pardew was manager. Um, and I was actually, for some reason, I think we were really short on injuries and it was a pre-season game, so it didn't really matter and he stuck me up front, like just off the, the, the front man, which I'd never played in my life. I was a defensive midfield player, really. Um, and just, but I didn't have the greatest first half. And he spent 15 minutes at half time absolutely battering me, um, calling me out, um, highlighting all my weaknesses, everything like that, and pulled me off at half time. I just couldn't believe it. I was like, this is a pre season friendly. You're playing me out of position. We're actually winning 1 0. And I've just had 15 minutes of being absolutely roasted. (laughs) Um, But yeah, just interesting moments like that. But in terms of family and friends now i was very fortunate in terms i had a lot of support
0: because there's that famous story isn't there about frank lampard jr when his dad was a coach at west ham and his uncle was the manager harry redknapp of course and there was that supporters forum in which frank lampard jr was in the room and the supporter says you're only picking frank because he's your nephew and not because he's any good (laughs) and i just always think dean that must have given younger frank lampard as much fuel and motivation as he could have hoped for because in terms of the work ethic and to be to his uncle Harry Redknapp did stick up for him and said he's going to go right to the top and and Lampard duly did obviously over his career winning titles and Champions Leagues and stuff but at that point when you've got a teenage kid sat in a room in front of supporters and you mentioned that often it is supporters who are quite harsh in terms of their criticism that must have given him a real boost so you know like what we've seen with with Miguel Almiron some people have joked that what Jack Grealish said has had an impact on his form recently but might not be as much of a joke at all it might actually be quite significant in terms of the way he's picked up his
4: form 100% and you never know what's going to motivate a player I'm sure um, Eddie Howe becoming the manager uh, and changing the way they play has helped but comments like that can really spark you and really inspire you and on all it may do now is think and open your eyes. I've got to work a little bit harder. And you, if you're honest with yourself, you may see some truth in it and think, actually, I'm not doing enough. I need to do a little bit more. I need to score more goals. I need to get more assists. I need to do more for the team. If you're honest with yourself, so it can actually help. It's harsh in a moment and it hurts because, you know, with Jack greedy saying that about himself that saying it, you know, the whole world's seeing that. So the whole world's judging it. Um, I'm sure it went around social media. So it makes it harder, especially in modern-day football, but you look at his form now and the way he's playing, it seems to have had a good effect on him, even though, like I say, it would have been tough in the moment. But he's been brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And I personally think he's always had that ability. But he's all, you know, Newcastle in the past have been a defensive team. They've had to play on the break. Now he's playing with better players, more attacking football. His confidence is up. There's a good feeling at the football club. And I'm sure that's helped as well. Um so probably you will be thanking Jack Greenish at the moment because he's <laughs> be
0: fantastic. <laughs> what about you then, Trevor? I mean, you've played with some great players over your time. You've also played against some great opposition. Has anyone ever said anything to you which made made you think, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna prove you wrong? Anything that sort of lit a fire underneath you to to prove those doubters?
3: Not not really. I it was only only when you get onto the field and um uh, you know, you're playing against someone who starts to sort of trash talk you, <laughs> right? right? Who wants to, like, get in your head. Um, you must have
0: had some belters. Come on. What, what, what have you been thrown?
3: Uh, I've got, there's constant ones, you know, like um, uh, Mark Dennis, right? You know, way back in the Southampton days uh, and QPR when he was there, he would just, like, be um, giving you verbals, right, you know, throughout, throughout the game. And, and it was irrelevant to whether he was playing well or not. He was just absolutely in, in and about you, right? You know, like um, it was a verbal assault, basically. And it was that kind of thing um, that, that happened on the football field would, would be something that w- would keep me on my toes. Um, and self-analysis, I think, in, in football is absolutely key to to success. That if you do have, um, no, I remember Glenn Hoddle, always said that his job as a midfielder he's got to create an absolute goal scoring and assist right an absolute chance he's got to at least do one of those again and he's got to score a goal so it's either that score a goal or have an assist it's his bare minimum that's how he judged himself I'm not saying that's that's setting the bar high enough I think it's probably setting the bar a little bit low but you've got to set yourself things that you expect expectation levels and I found that that was something that I did all the time. And it was even to the point of when I played at Everton and uh, I was on the right and Kevin Sheedy was on the left, that we had this um, unwritten uh, sort of feud, let's say, an unverbalized feud of if he scored, I felt like I had to score. And if I scored, uh, he would have the same momentum. And at the end, the end of the season, we'd both scored, I think he'd scored 17, I'd scored 16. And he was quite chirpy and happy about that, and I was a bit gutted. Although I scored a lot of goals, um, so it's just that some sort of things that inspire you to to get into into better form. But but with Almirón, I think it comes to it comes to Eddie Howe's capacity to make him feel good, um, and then he's got to convert that, of course, because he's the man with the with the boots on and he's over the white line. It's Almirón and his performances. But the, you know, the Newcastle fans have bought into a good start to the season with him. Um, you know, couple of that with the, the manager got his arm around him, uh, and, and he just looks completely um, a, a different footballer. But he would have been probably looking like the footballer is why Newcastle bought him. And we're seeing that Joel Linton was exactly the same. Joel Linton came under uh, Steve McLaren, I think it was, who brought him to the football club and tried to. Put a round peg into you know, uh, or a square peg into a round hole, by playing him as a number nine and just stay there and do that and score some goals. Eddie Howe's seen something different, added something to his game, and he now looks like a uh, you know a top Premier League footballer. So that are just key key mental things that um, that can inspire.
0: Both players were record signings, I think, if I remember correctly, for Newcastle. I think Joe Linton and Miguel Almiron were both record fees at the time. And it's good what you said as well about players competing, because we've seen that clear and obviously in the Premier League recent years with Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold trying to out-assist each other. So it definitely uh, definitely has its place. Just a final one before we round up today's dugout. We saw Cristiano Ronaldo uh, a couple of weeks back walk down the tunnel Um, in the game against Tottenham, which has been well publicised and documented. So we're not going to go into the nuts and bolts of that. But it did get me thinking, if you've got opposition players giving you stick and maybe giving you a bit of motivation, um, what about the opposite side of that? Were there ever any examples of um of players being divas that you can think of dean from when you were in your playing days or was everyone good and honest because it feels like when you've got 25 to 30 lads there's going to be one or two who maybe are a little bit more looked after than the others
4: let's just say do you know what no i was, I was thinking about this and I, I can't really remember no one really stands out that was that was really treated with with special treatment there was managers that would maybe adapt approach to certain players that maybe would we'll get an extra day off or could miss a training session because it's through superstition or just felt as though they performed better on the on the Saturday. But no, nah, not really. I was, you know, I worked with some top players and good players and good people. So no real divas. And also in dressing rooms, where well, you wouldn't allow it really. It, what, it was stamped out very quickly if someone felt as though they should be treated differently or wasn't going to be, put the same effort in as everyone else. It was stamped out pretty quickly in the dressing room that I played in. Um So I can't remember. I'm sure there's moments where look, there's been lots of falling outs and lots of words exchanged and things like that, Um but not to the extent where I've never seen anyone walk in from from a game, put it that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's more for me, some of the smaller things that make you think whether it's a big deal or not, Trevor, like Fabio Capello quite famously banned tomato ketchup when he was the England manager. And I just wonder whether anyone would have kicked off about that because they were (laughs) a big fan of their ketchup. So is there ever any experiences that you can call upon where someone's maybe thrown their toys when it was not really that big of a deal? Oh,
3: oh, no, you've got a warped mind, mate, honestly. (laughs) You're you're imagining this den of... Do you know of, of disaster within dressing rooms. Well, do you know, what?
0: I'm imagining Ronald Koeman when he was banned from eating mayonnaise, being yeah. fined a week's wages, and then splodging more on his chips and going and make it two weeks because he loved his mayonnaise so yeah. much. I
3: mean, you know, you can you can alienate um, groups of people if you're a manager, particularly by by you know changing something which the players don't get or don't, don't buy into. I remember the story at, at, at uh, Rangers, and I'd left Rangers at the time, but Dick Advocat came to came to Rangers, and um, <laughs> he had the players going in for lunch. Everybody had to have lunch, and had to have lunch together. But no one could start eating or leave before Dick Advocat started eating, and when he left, <laughs> right? So can you imagine that? Can you imagine he's 10 minutes late, and all the lads are in there waiting for him, and you can't even pick up your knife and fork? until he sits down and then you know it's like royalty coming into the room right (laughs) and and that didn't go down too well he didn't last in ranges too long because that's going to backfire it's common sense how you treat groups of people and how you act in groups of people if you're going to be successful and if you are going to try and stand out in any way shape or form you know the group will bring you down to, to earth very very quickly the only one that I can think of who uh, who got sort of sh- short shift was when when Morris Johnson came to came to Rangers um, uh, under under a bit of controversy because he was uh, the first Catholic to sign for the Protestant Rangers. That was the perception of what football was like on the west coast of Scotland, and he did come in like a bit of a superstar, but that dressing room brought him down to uh, you know. Put him in the in a hole, basically. You know, within two three days, He arrived in Italy at our training camp, and he comes in in a helicopter, and he's and he's and he's Rolex watches and his fancy Dan Versace swim shoot, you know, swimming shorts and things like that. And no, that just wasn't going to happen. And uh, he slowly got edged to <laughs> to to be half alienated. All of a sudden, he was trying to get himself right in the middle of the pack like, when they were all sat around a, a long table. He was in the middle. But by th- day three, he was sat on the right wing. He was out, out, out <laughs> pushed outside. Everybody sort of pushed along. He, he had no one to talk to in the end. And then he started to like, get it, right? This is a team effort and there's going to be no divas here. Uh, and he caught on to it very well. He played actually superbly well for Rangers for 18 months. But he had to, to uh, spend a little bit of time learning the ways of the group um and uh, that, you know, so he was successful but yeah it, yeah it's not as bad as you think uh <laughs> nile that you know players can players will not survive if they go in with the wrong attitude into a group they'll be weeded mm. out mm. And, and pretty quickly
0: yeah I mean there's not many examples of Carlos Tevez spending six months playing golf anymore which is a shame because they're quite fun to talk about Um, (laughs) that's it for today's episode of the dugout appreciate your time Trevor and thank you Dean as well good to see you all uh, as ever don't forget if you hit subscribe you won't miss an episode of the podcast again only a couple of weeks of Premier League action to go until the World Cup in Qatar and we'll be right across proceedings in the Middle East as well so this is the place to be for your football fix over the course of the Premier League season that's it from us today though on the dugout we'll catch you next time see you then
2: football's social daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk
5: with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere